For KLSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. The Equalization Board met Tuesday to certify figures showing lawmakers are facing a shortfall of about $85 million in the coming fiscal year. By comparison, the board said the state would have only $9 million less to spend when they met in December. Neva, what does this mean for the session ahead? Well, I mean, it means that uh, we're hitting that place where we're really going to have to look at these numbers. And I think even the governor, uh, when he made his comments this week, he said, you know, if you don't have growth in the economy, we're going to have to take uh, the money right back uh, uh, from some of these agencies, which uh, that's code for, I mean, we could be looking down the road, at least the conversation uh, brewing about cuts. So I think when I think when we look at these numbers and, and we see the fact that, uh, that we do have this decline and m- much of it can be... Uh, uh, attributed to the downturn in oil and gas revenues, which uh, a lot of people like to pile on the energy folks until uh, until they see the uh, repercussions of this in terms of five consecutive months now of a downturn in, in those numbers and, and forecasts. So uh, I think that uh, it puts a lot of uh, a lot of conversation out there. I mean, we have almost a billion dollars in, in savings, uh, uh, which is a record amount uh, for the state of Oklahoma. But with that, when you start talking about the shortfall and what's coming up in the next fiscal year, it lends to this bigger conversation as we start this budget process. And and I think the bottom line right now is it's a big question mark. I don't think anyone knows. When you when you listen to the Appropriations Chair in the Senate, Roger Thompson, he says a uh, bottom line for him, number one uh, to look at is still education. So are more dollars going there? Does that take away from someplace else? These are the big questions that lawmakers face. Ryan. And I think that that's the, the billion dollars in savings that we have, a record amount that's sitting out there does the legislature make a move for the governor to release some of that is and that's i think that could create some tension the governor's made it very clear that he thinks that that billion dollars in savings is necessary he thinks it's a hallmark of a responsible budget and there's going to be a lot of debate between lawmakers who have seen in the last couple of years either uh, standstill budgets or increase in revenue because of revenue measures that were passed during uh, governor fallon's last year in session uh, last year in office uh, with the legislative support that's do we do we just now pull back on some of those investments that we've been making when we're beginning to start to catch up because you know let's make no mistake about it even though we had new revenue come in and a and a much better budget picture last year we're still you know well below the amount of appropriations uh, per capita or not per capita adjusted for inflation mm-hmm. uh, a decade ago i mean so we are still underfunding state services in the state of oklahoma we're beginning to catch up now do we use some of that savings to try to keep that momentum up uh, or do we begin to look at cuts you know as senator thompson said education's number one priority but it is going to be a question of of who's going to be what agencies and what uh, what programs are going to be protected that's going to be a big big conversation moving forward and i think there are other parts of the conversation when you look at this 8.2 billion dollar uh, uh, appropriation that we're talking about now 300 million plus of that uh, for uh, the fiscal year's cash that won't be available when we get to fiscal year 22. So, I mean, even though those are one-time, uh, you know, one-time costs that they're looking at, one-time items such as uh, for technology and some of the other things that that those that appropriation money goes for, I mean, you have all of these other questions that are still looming. Number number one in the minds of some lawmakers that I've talked to is uh, about the whole uh, question with the tribes and the, and the gaming mm-hmm. because that 150 
million mm-hmm. is part of this equation. Uh, STIT 2.0 and how the Medicaid expansion rolls out and what the what the numbers are relative to that. Lots of big questions and a lot of things that I think we're going to have to watch very carefully in this session. Does it make for a very stressful end to the session, do you think? I right think now? that it makes for a very stressful middle of the session. I, I think that these, these budget conversations are already beginning now. I think that we'll see them... Uh, really ramp up in March. It's going to be hard for the legislature to pay attention to much else. I mean, there's, you know, the three big things that that should be dominating this legislative session are the the gaming compacts, uh, the budget, and Medicaid expansion. And those those are all very contentious within the legislature and among the legislature, or, and, or between, and, and yeah. between the governor yeah. and the legislature, and all interrelated. And so you can't you can't move one without moving the others. Oklahoma's governor and attorney general say the state has the drugs it needs to resume lethal injection executions. There haven't been any executions in our state since 2015 when a drug mix-up botched a procedure and brought national ridicule on the state. Ryan, how confident are you the state officials have it right this time? I have zero confidence, and and part of that confidence comes from the fact that, one, there's just simply no humane way for a government to kill its people. I mean, there's just there's just not. And we, we try to sanitize it. We try to make ourselves feel better about it. We do it uh, in, a, in a very secret procedure uh, and, and, uh, and, and feel like we've done justice. But really what we're doing in our name as Oklahomans is a, is a brutal act of violence on another human being. Regardless of what you think about that human being, that's what we're doing. So there's no humane way to do that. So, But even setting that aside, we still have this shroud of secrecy. The attorney general, the governor, the director of the Department of Corrections refused to give us really any information about where these drugs are coming from, the efficacy of these drugs. You know, we, we, know for, we know that the state in the past is, has literally you know, done drug deals in parking lots. And, you know, they, they lock up, you know, the, the attorney general likes to talk about how he wants to lock up drug dealers, how he has no, uh, no sympathy for drug dealers. Well, the state of Oklahoma has, in the in the past, engaged with drug dealers, essentially buying par- drugs in a parking lot uh, to to fund to fuel this uh, system of death. So there's really no way that we can we can trust them here. And we we also know that all of the other failures within the criminal justice system mean that the death penalty is uh, applied arbitrarily. It has a lot to do with race. It has a lot to do with income. It has a lot to do with what county you're in. And so there's no deterrent effect here at all. It's it's all just uh, pure purient brutal brutality on behalf of the state and on behalf of its people. We shouldn't be doing this again. Neva. Well, I think capital punishment is appropriate for the most heinous of crimes. I think the governor uh, said that as much uh, in his comments uh, at that news conference with the attorney general and others. And he did make the point that it is the duty of state officials to obey the laws of the state of Oklahoma by carrying out what is uh, perhaps the most somber task uh, that they can be uh, uh, that they can be charged to do and when you look at this in Oklahoma i mean the the point is the uh, the officials have said that there is a reliable supply of drugs uh, Attorney General Hunter uh, pointed out the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court has already rejected uh, legal challenges uh, uh, to to those drugs. So it does it does set the stage for uh, uh, for executions uh, to uh, move forward. Uh, we have 20 pe- 26 people right now on death row that have exhausted all of their appeals. So I think it is likely uh, uh, sometime in the near future that we will see uh, we will see the death penalty come back. Uh, in and 
move forward through this process uh, for these executions. The lawmakers have passed uh, the ability to do nitrogen gas. Uh, other states are going back to the electric chair. Why not go with these instead well, of going th with the, I, the drug? I don't know the answer to that other than they have made this determination. They, they believe that they're on a, a solid legal footing, that they believe that they have uh, uh, done what is necessary to uh, ensure that they put in place safeguards and training requirements and all that is uh, important in terms of the execution protocol and that uh, ultimately that the family members of these murder victims uh, who have waited a long time will finally see justice. And I think if the if the state really wants to overcome the legal challenges here because they're going to be there's going to be litigation over this. I think that the litigation could ultimately bring us back to a moratorium that we're that we have been under for the last many years. I think that if the state wants to overcome that, they got to put all of their cards on the table. They got to tell us where these drugs are coming from. They got to talk about those procedures and they got to talk about that process because even though the Supreme Court may have said that these particular drugs in this and this combination don't violate the 8th Amendment, the state of Oklahoma has demonstrated time and again that it just cannot be trusted with this awesome power. And so I think that a court's going to say, all right, well, just because you're using these drugs doesn't mean that it's constitutional. We want to know what these safeguards are. We want to know where you're getting these drugs. You know, how, how are you getting them? What are the efficacy of these drugs? Um, and I, I just think that if the state really, really wants to look at um, what, what it's doing here, it's uh, or what, what they're asking us to do here. This what the state's real position here is just trust us. And, you know, Oklahomans, we're Oklahomans, you know, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, whenever a government official just says, trust us, you know, <laughs> we should really worry. And especially when they're saying trust us with this really awesome, irrevocable power. Governor Stid wants to expand Medicaid by July of this year. A report from Oklahoma Watch uh, that says the governor's office is looking at asking lawmakers to pass a bill to use hospital provider payments to fund the expansion. He would then work to get a federal waiver to incorporate the rest of the Medicaid 2.0 to get block grants through the Trump administration. Neva, how likely is it the governor is going to get the Republican legislature to vote to expand Medicaid? Well, I think this is a uh, this is certainly what the governor has uh, kind of on the front burner. I think right now with lawmakers is to sit sit down, have these conversations face to face, uh, make the case. I mean, the governor's in a position where he basically uh, can take the lead and through executive action can accept the expansion. And then you know what he is asking is this shop bill, uh, which is. Uh, the the uh, uh, an acronym for supplemental hospital offset payment program, which is a mouthful, but <laughs> it's the it's the the fees that hospitals pay, and it is the what would be the uh, mechanism, the funding for this initial initial expansion on on Medicaid. So uh, there's a plan. He's he's rolling it out. It's got a lot of moving parts to it, uh, and lawmakers now are a piece of the equation in terms of will they buy into this bill, which he wants to he wants that to happen in tandem with all of these other uh, things that would take place. It's a big conversation with the backdrop that the governor has yet to set the date uh, for the uh, for the state question. And there's a lot of conversation on will that be June? Will it be August? Will it be November? How does that factor in with lawmakers uh, who are going back home, many of whom will be on the ballot for uh, uh, yeah. for re-election uh, uh, this year? So I think this is it, this is clearly, as, as Ryan said a moment ago, this is something that is going to be one of the most uh, keen, uh, critical focuses of the legislature and the governor throughout this entire session through the end of May. Ryan. You know, I don't doubt the governor's sincerity in wanting to do something here, but at the at the same time, his 
plans keep changing with the political winds. And, and that, to me, is, is really the evidence that the state question 802 folks need to say to Oklahomans, we need to put this in our Constitution because we're watching our governor and we're watching our legislature uh, come up with plan after plan after plan. And what we've put forward in state question 802 is a plan that Oklahomans, uh, by and large, polling shows that they agree with, that they support. The governor should put that on the ballot. And then if he wants to campaign against it, campaign against it. Full expansion at the outset, like the governor's putting out here, is, is, a, is in and of itself a great idea. But what he's saying is that he wants to go back to the Trump administration, assuming that there's a Trump administration beyond November or beyond January of 2021, uh, uh, and get these block grants to put new requirements in to Medicaid. So that's work requirements, premium requirements for a lot of recipients of Medicaid. That just misses the point of Medicaid. Medicaid is not a work program. It's a very basic moral statement of society that the most vulnerable among, among us should be able to go to a doctor when they're sick and they should be able to go to well visits to keep them from getting sick. It's not you know, a carrot to get people to work. That's actually kind of a, a cruel proposition mm-hmm. uh, that, that the governor and others are floating out there. So the idea that this is somehow undermining 802, I think that this bolsters 802 to say that we believe in this right to Medicaid uh, for our most vulnerable uh, people in our population, and we need to put it in the Constitution beyond the reach of these politicians. I think, I think what's interesting, though, is it does frame the debate for state question 802. I think you're right in in terms of this, Ryan, that the governor, by <clears throat> by moving out front and giving the voters a an opportunity for a real choice at the ballot box, because what ultimately the I think the uh, uh, engagement on this is going to be is do you want a constitutional do you want a t- constitutional uh, uh, provision or do you want the opportunity for it to be moved through the process and not be uh, basically hamstringing uh, future legislatures and appropriations with with uh, a dollar amount that at some point may be unsustainable. And so I think as voters begin to look at it, if, if you've already got the beginning of the expansion and then you have the opportunity to uh, add to that with uh, uh, not only expanding Medicaid first that the governor is, is kind of laying on the table, but then begin to make these additional changes which may reduce the uh, the the real uh, difficulty of the bottom line price tag on this. I mean, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars, and can we sustain that over the long term when we don't know with certainty what uh, what you know what budgets are going to look like in the future? And very quickly, can the governor get something through? That's basically it's Medicaid expansion. Come in, come up in July. That would be Medicaid expansion, regardless of what he's going to do with block grants or whatever. Yeah, I think it's difficult for the government governor to say Medicaid expansion, full Medicaid expansion, whenever he's made it clear, he's telegraphed that what he really wants is Medicaid expansion plus. The the opportunity to go get these block grants in the future. And just real quick, one of the other, you know, sidelights of this that I think is important to mention, the initiative petition process. You know, it's it's really important to drive a particular public policy like Medicaid expansion uh, at the ballot box, but it has had a huge effect on the conversation at the Capitol and in the governor's office. You know, the idea that Governor Stipp is now talking about full expansion, even with this idea that at some point in the future he wants to get block grants, that he's talking about full expansion right now demonstrates the importance of being able to get those signatures, turn them in, and have the threat of a campaign out there to influence public policy at the Capitol. 
Super Tuesday is taking place in less than two weeks with early voting in less than a week. Wow. A new Sooner survey shows a close race between Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders at 18% favorability and former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg at 17%. Meanwhile, former Vice President Joe Biden has 11% with the rest of the candidates in single digits. Ryan, how important is this election? I think it's incredibly important. I mean, the, the delegate race for the Democratic nomination it, you know, really ought to come down to who gets the most votes, who shows up at the convention. With the, with the most delegates on that first round of balloting, not the super delegates that weigh in and that can over, override the will of the actual Democratic voters in these primaries and caucuses throughout the nation. And every vote counts. And that's really a, a wonderful dynamic for Oklahoma, who for years had been overlooked in presidential contest, will be overlooked in, in, in uh, November whenever the general election comes around. Our seven electoral votes are going to probably most likely go to President Trump uh, and uh, almost assuredly yeah, go to President Trump. State, yeah. uh, but in these contests, we really do have candidates and their campaigns talking to folks, you know, real investments on the ground. Uh, I think it's troubling. It's troubling to me personally that uh, a billionaire like Michael Bloomberg can drop into Oklahoma, uh, hire near, you know nearly 30 staff members, uh, spend hundreds of thousands of dollars just in this state alone, uh, if not more, on campaign television advertising, and and bring himself into this Democratic campaign. I think that the Sanders campaign is going. They they have a, a near nearly four year old campaign apparatus up and running. Uh, with you know, strong get out the vote movement, uh, so on these primary days, it's really about who turns out and who who, who can uh, get people out there. So, what we're not seeing in these polls is intensity of support. And if it, on on March third, when people are deciding whether or not to get out to go vote or remember to go vote, uh, I think that the Sanders campaign is going to have an edge there. And Sanders actually did pick up Oklahoma, Neva, but there was also what fifteen percent said they weren't even planning on voting. That's right, and I think uh, I th- I think that's not uncommon in 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 primaries. Period. Mm. I mean, we know that that fewer people vote in primaries. Uh, also true in presidential preference uh, primaries. And in the instance uh, of looking at uh, Super Tuesday, there it's always filled with surprises. Mm. I mean, we look we think back. I mean, Bernie Sanders uh, four years ago uh, beat. Hillary Clinton in Oklahoma by 10 points, mm-hmm. uh, 52 uh, to 42. Uh, but then when you look, when you start breaking that down, uh, while he did very well and, and and won, Clinton carried black voters, only 14% of uh, the electorate in Oklahoma, but carried that by 44 points. So I think what you've seen develop, it, it appears uh, kind of uh, uh, from the outside, is that you have uh, Bloomberg uh, really focusing on the black vote in Oklahoma, really trying to uh, uh, make that uh, one of the key strategies in terms of uh, getting out uh, votes, voters for the election. Uh, and and uh, you see Sanders, uh, as uh, Ryan said, re-energizing and activating what is already a a a, a real network and a real grassroots uh, uh, campaign machine. And can they get those folks back out a second time? That's going to be the big question. And then with all of the ebb and flow nationally that we see in, in the uh, the polls, the fact that that you still have more than you know you you still have five people viable or uh, in the uh, uh, in the Democrat primaries uh, and. Will they will they still be uh, uh, kind of gaining momentum and look strong coming into Super Tuesday when you've got 14 states uh, in play? I think that's going to be mm-hmm. a big question. But even on the Republican side, if you remember back four years ago, Ted Cruz beat uh, Donald Trump in terms of uh, you know percentages yeah. uh, in Oklahoma. Marco Rubio, uh, many people felt like he was the guy that w- had the momentum and was coming in to potentially win the state, and 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 did not came in third. So uh, I think it's about 
about who you get to the polls, as we always talk about, but it's even more critical in these types of elections where people may have a preference, but will they take the time to basically go out and express that at the ballot box on what is really just one item or maybe two on their ballot on on uh, on on this March Super Tuesday day? And you've got Nevada this weekend, plus you've also got South Carolina. Right. So will those races have an impact? Do you I think, think, or will I they think, just be I too think that late? they do, and I think that one of the things that that we've seen is that the constituencies that have been voting in Iowa and New Hampshire are, are largely white. They're, mm-hmm. they're very, they're very uh, monolithic constituencies. And so we're going to see a much more diverse constituency with, uh, in particular with Hispanic voters in Nevada. We're going to see African-American voters uh, really have a huge impact in South Carolina. Uh, and I think that that's going to be where you begin to see some of the strength of these candidates and, and whether they're able to, to have an appeal across the Democratic uh, constituency, not just with uh, white voters in, in Iowa and in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. And, and if you look, you know, Bernie Sanders has you know, some of the strongest numbers with regard to the diversity of the, uh, not just of his of his team, but of the people that are supporting him. I mean, it, whether it's young people, people of color, you know, that's where I think that we're going to see in South Carolina some standout with, with Sanders. I think Biden will probably do uh, better in South Carolina than what we've seen. Uh, it'll be really interesting to see what happens in Nevada. But then on Super Tuesday, it really comes down to, do you have the resources and wherewithal to play a huge national game? Um, and that's I, that's where I think you know Sanders, uh, Biden to some extent, uh, but we'll see. But then Michael Bloomberg, Mayor Bloomberg's ability to immediately come in and buy and purchase a national infrastructure, campaign infrastructure, uh, even coming out of Super Tuesday, that's where he's put all of his, you know, all his marbles are right there. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see what he's able to buy with his billions of dollars. Um, and uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, Amy Klobuchar, folks that have you know done pretty well up to this point, they just don't have that same kind of national campaign infrastructure for uh, get out the vote activities on election day. So, um, you know, if they do really well on that day, it'll, it'll, I think it'll surprise a lot of people. Next week marks the first major deadline for legislation at the state capitol. By Thursday, all bills must be out of committee. I was just wondering if there are any bills you are still watching in committee. Neva, we'll start with you. Well, I, I don't know that they're, I'm keyed in on uh, specific bills at this point. I think it's more the fact that uh, that we're seeing in these committees a lot of bills just uh, move very quickly <laughs> through, and uh, and we'll see whether there's uh, whether they make it to the calendar, whether they make it to the floor for uh, uh, for uh, for a vote. But I think that th- as we've already talked about on the program today, I mean we have so much pressure on kind of this whole process legislatively with this whole budget conversation that I think it really has kind of taken the wind out of uh, some of these bills that might naturally have had a little bit of traction mm-hmm. or been more of a focus point. So I think I think that's one takeaway I have in terms of looking at bills. I think the other thing that's kind of an inside baseball point, but I think is, you know, uh, particularly for our listeners may be interesting, is the fact that uh, the House Speaker Charles McCall uh, is unchallenged for his third speaker speakership. Yeah. And, you know, mm-hmm. while that's yeah. not something that gets headlines or people pay a lot of attention to, when you're in the business of uh, uh, either being a lawmaker or someone who's trying to move policy and legislation, this is an important uh, piece of information and certainly uh, uh, speaks to what uh, what it's going to look like potentially. He obviously has to, you know, uh, potentially go through an election himself, uh, go through a, a caucus election, and uh, finally uh, uh, the uh, the full election, you know, next year. But 
I think it does say that we now have someone who could be uh, who could become the uh, uh, longest tenured speaker in the history of Oklahoma and the first Republican. Yeah, certainly uh, since term limits were, were enacted right. too. So, so yeah, and Ryan, you'd mentioned also that, that bills there's just a massive amount of bills being heard in these committees. And yeah, huge, huge committee agendas. And this is this is anecdotal. I haven't sat down and added it up or anything, but I, I do think that what we're seeing is more bills placed on committee agendas, and then they're passing. I mean, bills that we talked about early on, like the, uh, you know, some of the 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 high the the headline bills, you know, the the MAGA license plate stuff like that, that we thought there's no way that this will get a hearing, uh, and if it does get got a hearing, hearing, got passed. Yeah, it's getting hearing. I yeah. mean, so all a lot of a ton of bills are getting. There was a bill, uh, Senate Bill 1859. It's a six week abortion ban. This, the author in committee uh, acknowledged that it doesn't pass constitutional muster, uh, passed it out of committee. I mean, they're just, you know, there's huge numbers. And you talk to players at the Capitol right now, whether it's lobbyists or, or policymakers or agency heads, they, they will tell you that this is kind of a, it's, a, it's an odd session. Uh, there seems to be kind of, uh, I don't want to say a, a lack of leadership, but right now the legislature seems a little aimless and they're just kind of throwing everything out there and they're passing it. I think that there's some urgency being felt with the budget situation that's that's right around the corner. I think that there's some urgency being felt that this is an election year and we just, we're seeing, uh, and then the other thing that I'll throw out there, and maybe this is interesting to our our viewers, and this is just, uh, I don't have any, I don't have any, I haven't, I can't quantify this in any way, <laughs> but if you go to the Capitol, the entire rotunda is shut off. Right. And not only is it shut off, because I, I worked no out lobbyists. there. No they're just aimlessly wandering around. I, I walked, usually where they're standing. I, wa- I worked out there a long time ago when they put the, the dome on top of the Capitol and the, the, the rotunda was shut off then. Um, and maybe I just didn't notice it as much then, but right now you notice that there's, you know, the, the rotunda is really a place where a lot of conversations happen. You know, the ability to walk from the house chamber over to the Senate chamber. Uh, it's, it's really difficult now. So, and it's not just that the rotunda shut down, there's construction all over the place. And I'm wondering if that has uh, some effect just on, on the mood and the ability uh, for, for conversations to happen, for negotiations to happen, and communication to happen between the chambers, among the members, among the folks that are out there lobbying. It's, it's a strange session. It's really weird. And there's going to be a lot more of it as we go. We're only about a, what, a quarter of the way through? <laughs> I don't even know now. Uh, Ryan and Neva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.